Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, beginning in verses 1 to 9. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 9. Hear now the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Word to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to you asking for your mercy and for your grace. We pray that, Lord, from this text, you would show us Christ. From this text, you would help us to understand what it means to walk in humility, in faith, looking to Jesus. Help me, Father, to speak your glorious truths, and may I not speak anything that is not acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we consider this text, especially the very beginning of this text, we hear of the disciples coming to Jesus and asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we may feel like shaking our heads at these disciples who are thinking of such questions. They should better know by now what questions to ask even before thinking critically of how could the disciples ask such questions, it would be good to think about how do we think of our own identity with respect to Jesus and his kingdom? How serious are we of not being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is very important text that is before us. It tells us the important value of Jesus' kingdom the greatest importance of Jesus' kingdom, and also about our place within his kingdom, and how we are to treat the fellow citizens of this kingdom. So as we look at this text, verse 1 of chapter 18 tells us that at that time, or at that hour, that the disciples came and approached Jesus with a question. And this is a clue that we should look at this question in light of what has happened in the verses that preceded in the book of Matthew. And as we think about what has just come before this particular story, it makes us more disappointed in the disciples. 
Because if you look back to the end of chapter 16, this is where Jesus, for the very first time in this gospel, says to his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem and he is going to be crucified. He is going to suffer and is going to be killed. And when he goes to Jerusalem, and he also reminds the disciples that they are going to suffer. He has to suffer before he is glorified, and they too are going to suffer. And then in chapter 17, we see that Jesus tells two more times that Jesus is going to suffer and be killed. If you look at 17 verse 12, it says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then in verse 22, in chapter 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So this is right before the disciples, and yet they want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking to them about suffering and death, and they are thinking about who is the most exalted. Now, Matthew doesn't explain this context much, but if you, and if you just end chapter 17 and begin chapter 18, you would think that the disciples are just asking an innocent question. That is not the case at all. Mark and Luke really help us to explain or to understand the context. Luke says that they were having an argument about who is greatest in the kingdom. He calls it an argument. And listen to how Mark describes in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, this is sad on many levels, but most sad because this argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is happening in the shadow of the Son of Man being killed by the hands of men. But if we pause for a moment, these disciples are like all of us. They are forgetful just as us. It is much easier for us to think about attaining greatness. It is much easier to think about our desire for power or influence than to think about our call to suffering, our call to patient endurance, or our call to humility. But Jesus faced with this question begins this answer in verse 22. Well, we see that the first point, that true greatness begins with humility, as we are looking at these verses. True greatness begins with humility. In verse 2, it says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Surprisingly, Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he picks up a little child. And he sets this little child in the midst of his disciples. He sets them as a visual aid to help them understand. 
And Jesus uses this child as an object lesson to answer the question about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is a brilliant example because this is such a paradox on the surface. There is nothing great about a child, especially in that culture. This is as if in order to explain who is the greatest, Jesus is setting before them someone who is not great, someone who is by all accounts the least. Jesus describes true greatness by setting this child in the midst of the people. And notice the first thing he says, truly I say to you. This is serious. This is authoritative. This is the truth that Jesus is telling to these disciples. Here is the truth, verse 3. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, forget about being greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To even gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like children. And he points to this little child. Now, what is it about the children that Jesus wants the disciples to emulate? The disciples were concerned who is the greatest in the kingdom. And you see, Jesus takes them back to square one because they are missing the point. What Jesus is saying is that the disciples must turn. You see that word? Unless you turn. Literally, that word means repent. Turn, repent and you become like a child. Without turning, you will not have gospel humility. There is no salvation. As Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must turn in gospel humility to God and become like a child. Not acting like a child, but being like a child. Children exemplify trust and reliance and kind of simple trusting faith. I have two daughters. Like my daughters, when we are in a crowd or a mall, even when I don't look at them and just open my hands as I'm walking, they naturally put their hands in mine and follow me. It's just dependence. It's just humility, just trust, meaning we enter the kingdom by being not great. We enter the kingdom as the least, as the smallest, as the least important. Just as little children depend upon their parents, we as children are to look to our father in faith. Jesus is saying that is the only way you can receive this kingdom. And it is also the only way to continue in that kingdom. Humility. Christianity is not the survival of the fittest. It is the survival of the humblest. It is recognizing as the children, I do not have sufficient knowledge. Like children, I do not have sufficient wisdom. Like a child, I need to constantly look for help. I am dependent upon my father. And more mature we are in the faith, the more our life looks like that of a child. Continually looking to him, continually following after him. The disciples here were looking at their own accomplishments, their own popularity by associating with Jesus. In a way, Jesus' answer doesn't make any earthly sense. If you think about who is the greatest in the earthly kingdom, it is always the successful, someone who has accomplished something really heroic, 
who has attained great power, who has attained political power, who perhaps corporate power, and someone who has attained some fame, someone who is cool. And yet Jesus puts before them who is evidently, obviously not great in any kind of worldly terms. They were forgetting as we come into the kingdom, we come in with humility, and as we continue in the kingdom, we continue in humility. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Do you notice that, my friends? This is the nice way of proclaiming the basic gospel message. How is it that we enter the kingdom? It is not by any greatness in ourselves. It is not how we generally think of attaining greatness in an earthly kingdom. It is not about heroic achievements. It is not about a glittering resume. We are saved by grace by the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We are saved by putting our trust in Jesus' greatness and his accomplishments. That is the only way we enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul tells us to look to Jesus in order to have this childlike humility. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, but in lowliness, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then what does he describe? He describes Jesus who is willing to humble himself for the sake of me and you. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Through the humility of Jesus, he calls us to the same humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that there is only one thing I know that crushes me to the ground and then humiliates me to the dust. And it is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. Friend, if you have not humbled yourself in this way and you see that you are a sinner running after the things of this world, greatness, fame, money, name for yourself, know that nothing but the Son of God can save you. Nothing but the cross can give you the spirit of humility. Turn, repent in faith. And so having clarified that Jesus now turns back to what the disciples are asking in the first place, in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That is true greatness, 
What about greatness in the kingdom? Here, he says, being like a child it is what makes one great in the kingdom. Now, to clarify, Jesus is not saying we need to humble as children are humble. That is not the point, what he is saying. Because it is also obvious that children are often not very humble. Children can be just as arrogant and boastful as adults can be. So he is not saying children are humble, so we need to be humble. What he is saying is that we need to humble ourselves like those children who are not really great. I'll repeat that. What he's saying is that we need to humble ourselves like those children who are not really great. So meaning we are to actively lower ourselves so that we are not great, so that we are the least. We need to be the little people, to be the unimportant people. But this is not how the world works, does it? It's often the bold, the loud, the outspoken, the opinionated who push the highest. The pride, the independent, arrogant, and the cockiness, it makes successful people, but it makes for a poor Christian. Makes for the success in the secular world, but makes for the failure in the spiritual world. So Jesus warns us. He warns us that if we do not have the gospel humility, we will think too highly of ourselves. Jesus describes this child as one of the little ones. Isn't it profound? That these fully grown adult men are supposed to become small like a child. Rather than pursuing greatness, Jesus wants them to identify as small. That they are in fact the little ones. They are not important as the king or the emperor or the governor or the son of the emperor in any way. Luke says the children are the least in the community and in the society. Friends, is that how you think of yourself? Do you see yourself as the one who knows all or as the one who is the servant of all? It is easy to give lip service to our supervisors, to our spouses, our parents, our pastors, without really humbling ourselves in submission. It is easy to gossip or slander behind their backs while nodding in agreement to their face. But real humility is uncomfortable because it makes us vulnerable. It invites another person's guidance to hold real sway. The sense of wanting to be great, wanting to be significant, wanting to be important, it is really a focus on self. We think people are great who aren't, and the reality is that there are millions of Christians who are all over the globe, who are truly great in the eyes of Christ, but invisible to the people around them. True greatness that Jesus talks about here comes from his expectation. It comes from Christ. It begins with humility, humbly accepting, I have been brought into the kingdom. I have been given a place in the kingdom. And this acceptance brings freedom. When I stop trying to contend with other people for greatness in the kingdom, it gives me actually the grace to actually live the way my king wants me to live. So this true greatness begins with childlike humility, but moves on to others. This is the second point that we'll see here today. True humility doesn't hinder others. It helps. It is not comparing. It is helping. 
It is serving. It is not competing. It is self-denying. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Word to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. So what we see here, see here is that there is a positive and a negative here. The positive is that whoever receives one such child, now the one such child refers back to the one who has made himself like a child by association with Christ, by entering into the kingdom in verses 3 and 4. And the child here is a believer in Christ. And as we see the same parallelism in this verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now it is helpful to understand that sin is just sin, just like the natural word to sin is to miss the mark and to wander from the way. But this is not the word that is typically used to describe the evil kind of sin. This word actually means stumble. When the Bible talks about a stumbling block, this is the word that is used. NIV does a good translation of this verse. So the one who believes in Jesus to sin is the one who causes this child to stumble. What is Jesus talking about here is that how we receive believers how we welcome other believers with hospitality. How are we receiving them, helping them on their way? The picture is that you are strengthening, you are edifying, you are building up, you are helping them along. Versus the negative, if you are refusing them to help. You are withholding the good that you could do for them, and so you are hindering them in their discipleship. So when we choose to not help, we are choosing to leave them in their weakness, to cause them to stumble and their progress in their faith. It takes humility to, to, that marks an adult who receives a child, who listens to a child, who will speak with a child, because the child doesn't have a lot to give. And Jesus says, even welcoming, even one child in this way is important to him. And why in the world we will choose not to help someone? I think the key is in the usage of the word child. Because a child is a person of low position, low status. So I think the picture goes something like this. Here comes a person who is insignificant in social standing of our church. A person who cannot be used to elevate our status in our faith community. A person who cannot really give us a platform to do something really impressive and gain the respect of people, but they need help anyway. So if you are clamoring to do something so that other people can see, so that other people will be impressed, something that will look like greatness to people that matter, we will pass this little one, this child, by and refuse to help. One who seeks worldly greatness thinks, what is in it for me? If this is the way we are thinking, we are missing several opportunities to do something truly great in the eyes of Christ. Look at verse 5, what Jesus values. He says, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. 
So if you receive this child because they are associated with me and because you love me and you want to show mercy to this child and this is why you're doing this, you know what happens? You receive me. The reward for receiving his children is to actually receive Jesus Christ. Contrast that it with verse 6. The negative is that, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The millstone is a stone that is used for grinding of grains. There are different sizes of them. There are one that are household ones that are relatively small, but the particular one that Jesus uses is a millstone that is worked by a donkey. A human cannot move it, and so here you are in a boat in the middle of the sea, and there is something tied around your neck. For me personally, I will not even need a millstone. Just me in the water is more than enough that I will go no other direction but down. And you know the feeling when you have a millstone as big as this one around your neck, the pull into the water is guaranteed. And Jesus says, that would be better for you than causing one of these little ones who believe in Christ to stumble, to be hindered in their faith. That is a huge deal, right? Why does it matter so much how you treat the other person? Again, it is because Though they are unimportant in the eyes of the world, they matter in the eyes of the king. This is how Jesus identifies with the lowest of believers. Now, friends, in terms of application for us as a church, do you only listen to the counsel of your senior pastor? Or do you listen to the biblical counsel of a brother who does not take up any official role in our church? Would you be okay to just have a meal or a breakfast or a coffee with a brother who is not so popular in the church? Do you only want to attend the Bible study if only the brother who is leading is someone whom you like? Do you want to associate with the group of sisters who pray well and can articulate the truths of the scriptures well? Do you only serve when it is a platform that creates recognition for you? Something a little more spotlight-centric? Do you want to lead Bible studies, but serving in the kids? Nah, that's not my jam. Do you feel bad that you are left out from a book study? Or do you think of people who are left alone, and do you pursue them, and you seek to edify them? Let's not downplay or make excuses in our own hearts, brothers and sisters. Let's take an honest assessment of our own hearts. Look at verse 7. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to the world because of the stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks, things are that that are going to hurt Christians, things that are going to make it hard to be a Christian in this world. And they are going to be here just because it is the world. And it is necessary. It is hard enough to live in this world. It is sad. But do you know what is more sad? It is when other believers are against you. When they refuse to help and leave you alone. 
I have often heard brothers joke being difficult and unloving to their fellow believers, and they say, well, brother, I'm being an instrument of sanctification in your life. I will not change. I will not deny myself. And by doing so, I'm going to be an instrument of sanctification of God in your life. But Jesus says, woe to the one by whom temptations come. Oh, my brother, think carefully how you are being a stumbling block in another brother's life. This is a pronouncement of judgment. Your actions, your decisions have impact on others. With every interaction, you are either helping or hindering the children of God, the children of Christ's kingdom. This sounds really heavy, but let's not lose perspective. This is all good news. If you are living to try and impress people, this will become burdensome. If you are trying to do Christian things to gain a right standing, to compare with others and feel better, this is burdensome. But if you are just happy to be in the kingdom and are eager to serve wherever you can, then what Jesus is telling you is this is true humility. It will actually give you great freedom and promises rewards Jesus himself. And finally, not only hindrances to my faith are in the people or circumstances outside me. True humility deals honestly with weakness. That's the last point. True humility deals honestly with weakness. Jesus is, not talk, is now talking about the stumbling blocks in our own lives. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is not the first time Jesus uses the, this image. He used this image in chapter 5 as well. If your, if your right hand causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out, pluck it out. Now we all know what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we actually self-mutilate ourselves. This is a hyperbole. It's a metaphor. Jesus is saying, deal drastically with those things that will hinder you in your progress of faith. The point Jesus is making demands that kind of commitment that chopping of body would require. If you already know this image and this is familiar to you and you understand this and you heard this many times, even just a few weeks back, Pastor Ron preached from Matthew 5, emphasizing this point clearly for us. The question I want to ask you today is, why aren't you doing it? What stops you from taking drastic action against the things that hinder you and hold you back as you follow Christ? The problem is that sometimes drastic action is not private. Now Jesus says, cut off your foot that causes you to stumble. Take an example of a brother in our church. Again, this is an example, a metaphor. And if that brother decides to take his foot off because it's causing him to stumble, and he cuts it off and he comes to church, there will be people who will notice it and ask questions like, what happened? 
This is terrible. And then he would have to talk about it. So let's take the internal reality of his sin, like coveting from the Ten Commandments, and if his sister recognizes that her coveting is hindering her in her trust in Christ, in her affections for Christ, and yet it is taking over her heart, and self-control is gone, and she constantly looking at things that would give her pleasure. Online shopping takes a deep root in her life, and shopping for things is making her feel better, and she sees the problem, and she decides, I will not be mastered by this, and she gets rid of her phone. And then she takes six hours to text Mac, and it takes long time for her to type on her dumb phone. People are going to notice when she is not able to interact on the WhatsApp group, when all the cool gals and boys are sharing their prayer requests and seemingly doing awesome in their lives. People are going to ask questions, and that is going to lead to awkward conversations. Because the reality is not everyone has that struggle. So in the eyes of the people, she's going to look like weak, vulnerable. She's going to look not great. She is not stronger and therefore not greater. So the implication is this, if you are living for greatness in the estimation of other people, you will not take the necessary action to deal with your sin. Because it is going to be seen publicly as weak and vulnerable. And brothers and sisters, let's pause for a moment and think. Do we think like this? Do not be able to share our sin struggles that causes us to stumble with the fear of how the other person will start to see us? Friends, do we in our attitude, approach, dealings, put down or look down on people who are not strong in faith as ours? And contrary to this, and if the sister, like many of us, struggle in these ways, and she deals with her sin, not drastically, but in a more casual approach. Well, I will keep it in control. Oh, I have a reason why am I doing this? Why am I buying this dress or these shoes? They are just needs, not wants. I am not spending money on branded shoes. These are just second hands. But maybe she's deceiving herself because the same results will happen eventually. She's giving into this deceiving herself and she's giving into the indulgence of shopping, which turns into closeness. And then she's withdrawn and isolated from other believers because she's still working for performance. And then she starts to wonder if others are judging me by my actions. Maybe they are or not. She feels like that, and that leads to the hardness of her heart toward Christ and his people. And that turns into despair and bitterness. Why didn't this work for me when it looks like it works for all the other people around me? It wasn't the shopping we need to understand. It wasn't the debt. It wasn't the seemingly harmless browsing of the internet for offers. It wasn't the casual watching of online UK-UK experience. It wasn't even coveting. It was pride. She has overestimated her own resolve in dealing with sin because she thought that she can deal with it tomorrow. Be on God, my friend, on those things that lead into sin. Be on God, my brother, 
when you are tempted to think in this way, that you can deal your sin on your own and take every single measure to cut yourself off from them. Cry out for the Lord for grace and for his help. Your desire to be great in the eyes of others keeps you from dealing honestly and openly with what is causing you to stumble. You were so committed to be great in the eyes of others that you allowed the cancer to take over you and grow and kill you from inside. And every stage of your Christian development and in every sphere of your Christian discipleship, our greatest enemy is our own pride. And our greatest friend is humility. Just like these disciples, we want to be great. And we show it in a multitude of different ways. But we are to take it seriously because the sin of pride is that serious. If we do not kill sin, sin will kill us. This sin is more than dangerous. It is deadly. What we see here is that it is eternally deadly. Consider the images that Jesus uses in here in verse 3. He says, you will not even enter the kingdom if this pride is active in your life. In verse 6, you will be like you, the drowning by a millstone pulling you down by the bottom of the sea. And then verses 8 and 9, he uses this image of eternal fire. The image is that you are banished from the kingdom and thrown into this hellfire. You are drowning, you are burning, you are banished from the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. These are strong images of the wrath to come. Rejection to come if you pursue greatness in the eyes of people. If you try to impress people, it is the road that leads to hell. But true greatness begins with true humility. Openly confessing my spiritual bankruptcy, my weakness, my need leads to life. Brothers and sisters, we have been invited into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. A kingdom of glory. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that endures while every other kingdom in this world has or will fall. We have been purchased for life in that kingdom by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ through his precious shed blood. And Jesus has told us in the end of chapter 16, those who lose their life now for his sake will find it. This is not ultimately about the loss in this present age. This is about gaining the kingdom, life in the kingdom, even greatness in the kingdom. The present road of suffering is Jesus' own road. He followed the road of suffering. But where did it lead? It led to resurrection. It led to glory. Is this how you see entering into this kingdom, my friends? Do you see the value of this kingdom? Do you see beauty in being called the heirs of Christ? And when we realize this, the sins, the attractions, the temptations, the seductions of the present age are not so important compared to what is so great. Brothers and sisters, remember, you have a great calling. You have a great citizenship. And you have a great savior and king. Let us conduct ourselves as though this is true of us. May we honor Christ and his kingdom as the greatest things that we can ever imagine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
we come to you knowing that how often in the pride of our hearts we reject thinking and living as if we are your kingdom citizens. We ask your forgiveness, Lord, and we ask that even today you would help us, you would give us the grace to say no to our sin, to kill sin actively. May we not strive for the greatness in this world, but may we seek to please you and honor you through our lives. Impress upon our hearts, Lord, the weight of your wrath to come. And help us, Father, that we would work out our salvation in fear and in trembling, knowing that we are, we are dust if it is not for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.